0: Damascus, and he was there, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. My name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So, when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. The disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how you can use people to accomplish your purposes. We thank you that you choose to use people for your purposes. We pray that as we meditate upon this passage, that we would be astonished and amazed at how you work, how you enable, how you call, and how you accomplish your mission. Pray that as we reflect upon your goodness and your care in this passage, that it would encourage us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of the things that you've called us to, to proceed in boldness and confidence, knowing that you have a plan and that you will accomplish your plan as we humbly submit to you. And in your name we pray. Amen. The first point, I believe, is this. God calls commissions and equips his servants. And you'll see that this happens to numerous different people, and different things happen to different people throughout the process. Saul is introduced though as a man with an evil commission. If You notice in verse 1, this is not the type of person that most Christians would want to associate with readily. His mission is actually against the plans and purposes of God. And yet he does not realize it. His intentions are hostile to God's plans. He is breathing threats and murder. This is not somebody that you want your kids to hang out with. This guy hates Christians, and he wants to see more of them brought to death. He's watched Stephen die. He was part of that. And now he has a desire to go and see this same mission carried forth outside of his local community that he lives in. And so he goes and he gets this commission from the high priest. And the way it probably worked was something like this. Back then, far earlier in history, there was a, a religious order of priests that actually had independence. And a lot of the bigger empires allowed them to kind of have their own independence and kind of rule by themselves. And they, So they had like extradition rights and stuff like that. And so probably the Romans kept some of that in place. They knew that that would allow for more peaceful negotiations with the Jews and the ability to rule them more easily. And so the high priest, I believe, actually had extradition rights in Damascus. And, and so what happens is Saul hears the message of Jesus Christ is spreading to other communities. And he's like, Well, you guys have extradition rights, right? So let's go there and bring them back. And the Jewish high priest is like, this is an excellent idea. This will stop the spread because what we've been doing hasn't stopped the spread of who Jesus is yet. So he gets this permission to go. And so he's commissioned already. This is a man who has been commissioned. He's a man on a mission. It's an evil mission. But he is going. and He's passionately pursuing this mission. And as he goes on this mission, what happens? All of a sudden, as he Journeys, and he's coming near to Damascus. Suddenly, the Lord Jesus Christ calls for Saul while he's on his evil commission. All of a sudden, a bright light appears. All of a sudden, the Lord Jesus Christ cries out to Saul and says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And Saul is somebody who is. A Jew. And so the Jews were not like some of the Greek people who, you know, believe that this could have been a lesser God or some unique circumstance to happen. A Jew would have seen something like this take place and they remember all the different accounts from the Old Testament of how God has miraculously appeared to people, how God speaks to people. And he would have seen this and he would have immediately gone, wow, God is revealing himself to me. In the same way that he did so many times in the Old Testament. And so Saul already is willing to listen. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he's like, if there's a bright light in the middle of the day that makes the sun look like nothing, and there's a voice telling me something that appears all at the same time, I should listen. And so he responds by submitting himself to the Lord. And you see this From the very first part, he's willing to submit. I believe he kind of knows already who the Lord is. But he asks him, who are you? If I'm persecuting you, who are you? And the response comes back that he is Jesus. And that Saul is actually pursuing the persecution of Jesus. And he tells him, this is a hard position for you to be in. It's not something easy for you to pursue after. It's not easy for you to live like And so he asks him what he's supposed to do. And so his demeanor, I believe, is is one that is reverential and in awe of who God is. If you notice, verse 6 says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's been confronted and told,
1: you're on the wrong
0: mission. This is a guy that looks up to the high priest. He believes that they're the religious leader. He believes that they are like the closest person to God, and the high priest of his day has told him, "This is the mission that I'm sending you on. Go and accomplish it." And now the Lord Jesus Christ comes and reveals Himself and says, "You are persecuted." So he's like, "What do you want me to do?" He's immediately submissive to God's leading, and. This story is its really difficult to pinpoint exactly where Saul comes to Christ, but I believe that somewhere from, you know, verse 3 through later on the text when um, Ananias comes to him, somewhere in there Saul actually gets saved. I wouldn't be surprised if Saul actually got saved, like, on the road to Damascus, but the text doesn't really say one way or the other. And so he's submissive, he's willing to submit himself, so Saul follows in obedience. And you'll notice later on in the text that he says that he waits for three days, and while he waits, he doesn't eat or drink as he waits. But he's also involved in prayer, because when God comes and reveals himself to Ananias and says, go to him, what, what does he say? He says, he's been praying, and it's been revealed to him that you're coming to him, and you're going to lay hands on him, and when you do that, he's going to receive sign And so Saul is submissive to the Lord's leading. And what does the text teach us? If you remember, I said that God calls, and he commissions, and he equips his servants. And God is not done calling people to himself. This call here, at least at the beginning, is a call to salvation. He's not initially just simply calling him to... Service. He's not equipped to serve you. He has to get saved. He has to come to Christ and believe that Christ is who he says. And so God wants us to realize our need of a Savior and respond to his gentle calling as well. And Saul here models for us very well how you and I should respond to truth as it's presented. Jesus Christ is gentle. And he has a desire that we would come to repentance. And 2 Peter 3 tells us that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What's that telling us? It's telling us that God is going to one day judge the world. And it's going to be a terrible, horrible judgment. It's going to be complete. Everything that's deserving of punishment will be punished. But the verse goes on, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering for us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has a desire that people would see his mercy, see his. And the thing would respond to that. It is because Jesus is merciful and compassionate to you and I, that he came and he lived among us in our sinful, sin-cursed world. He endured pain. He endured mocking. He endured the tribulations and the pain and the heartache of this life. And he did all that without And he willingly went to the cross and he paid the penalty for all mankind's sin. So that you and I do not have to pay that penalty, but we can look to Christ and say, I believe that Christ paid the penalty for sin. And I believe that righteousness is available through the life of Christ alone and receive that gift of forgiveness. So God is desirous that we would see our need of a Savior. We would realize that our sin separates us from God, and he's calling people to himself.
1: But not only that, the
0: text goes on and it shows that God commissions Ananias to leave on a mission. And as he comes to Ananias and commissions Ananias, he comes, and it's interesting just how willing Ananias appears at the beginning. And as he finds out what his actual commission is, all of a sudden the walls begin to go up, right? Ananias has God appear to him, and Ananias is called out by God, and he says, Ananias! And he says the same thing that Isaiah says, right? God comes to Isaiah and tells him, This is the this is the situation, we need somebody. And he's like, Here I am. And that's that's how Isaiah responds, or how Ananias responds. And then God goes on and he tells him, This is what your task is. You're supposed to get up, go to the street called Straight, inquire of the house Judas, and look for the man named Saul of Tarsus. He's been praying. He's seen in a vision that you're supposed to come and lay your hands on him, and he's going to get his eyesight back. And Ananias is very hesitant. He knows about Saul's past, and he knows about Saul's plans for the current, future, current city he's in, right? And so he he lists out his grievances before the Lord. Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Me, I can imagine being trepidatious myself about this mission. This is not a mission that you undertake lightly. Here's the guy who's been in charge of persecuting now the Damascus church. He's already done that quite successfully in other communities. Now he's been sent here. The people in the town of Damascus all know what Saul's mission is. That becomes even more clear as we get into like verse 23 to 25. They They're all hear his new message and they're like, this isn't the same Saul we heard about was coming. What happened? And And... Ananias himself has heard that Saul is coming, and he's heard about his mission, that he's coming to bind people and take them back. And so God gives him this mission. But notice what else God does. God doesn't just simply tell him, hey, here's the mission, go give him his eyesight back, and everything's all done. He goes on and he equips him and he encourages him. Why? Because he's a feeble servant. That so often is who we are. God has a mission for us. He's given us a mission. You and I are supposed to go and make disciples of all nations, and yet so often we are anxious, we are slow, we are nervous, we are fearful, we are hesitant. Sometimes even lazy in making the efforts to fulfill our great commission. And Ananias faces the same temptations and the same troubles. Different, but the same. He's struggling with fulfilling his mission. Now, your reasons are probably drastically different than. You're not afraid that you're going to actually be killed or hauled off to Jerusalem and be tortured for the next couple months if you do go and tell somebody about Christ. But you and I are often weak and feeble when it comes to fulfilling our mission. And Christ is the same way he was back then. He comes and he encourages and he equips us. How does God come and encourage and equip his servants in this time? tells him about his plan. He tells him that he has a plan for this evening. Look with me at verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to hear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my comes to him and he says, I understand your hesitation. But this is my plan. My plan is to take this man who's been commissioned by the enemy to go and accomplish his evil purposes and take him and make him one of my servants who is going to be commissioned with a brand new mission and his objective, his plan is to take this man and use him to spread the gospel message to Gentiles, to Israelites, and the kings All over the world. So he comes and he reassures him and he says, Ananias, I'm not calling you to do something that's outside of my plan. I'm calling you to do something that will promote and advance my plan. And that's the exact same thing, done differently, but that's the exact same thing that God does for you and I in our moments of feebleness. In our times of doubt and despair and anxiety about following God's plan, he comes to us and he reassures us that this is part of his plan. That no aspect of our lives is outside of his sight and his sovereign power and control, and he reassures us that this is exactly what I have for you at this time. And as a result, you and I can go forward in boldness and confidence, knowing that God is going to use Trials and the situations, the hardships that we face for his honor and for his glory, making himself known. Maybe not in, you know, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth through your individual life, but maybe at least in your Jerusalem, people that are in your community will see that the events that you have come through are events that God used to portray himself to those around you. And so God comes and he encourages. And he equips his feeble servants. What does Ananias do? He follows in faithful obedience. He hears God's plan. He understands that God has a plan, that God is sovereign, that God is going to work through this trial. And he says, I'm going to advance and I'm going to follow in obedience. And so he gets up and he goes his way and he enters into the house where Saul is staying and he lays his hands on Saul and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. He immediately obeys. He enters. And he embraces Saul in God's mission for his life. He's willing to embrace and accept God's plan, and that's what you and I are called to as well. This is say this is God's plan and if this is God's plan that I'm going to embrace it with my whole being and I'm going to pursue after the commission that He has given me. So Saul receives Lord and he follows him in baptism. and then God equips Saul for a faithful ministry. Notice he, he receives nourishments. He's gone three days and three three days without eating and drinking. So he's strengthened through that, and then what does he do? He spends time with the believers, and through that, I believe, he is equipped. He knew a lot about the Old Testament. It seems to me that he's filling in some details, and as he receives a few days of training under them, what does he go out and do? He goes and he boldly completes the mission. text does not leave us with any other idea about when he takes this commission on immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God he goes and he immediately proclaims that Jesus Christ is the son of God and the people are flabbergasted they're like what in the world Look with me at verse 21. Then there were all then all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Like, we've heard about this guy, but when we heard about him, he had a drastically different commission. Because he was supposed to come from the high priest, and he was supposed to continue to perpetuate the same things that he's been doing in Jerusalem, which is persecuting these people. And now, he himself is proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he fills his mission. Paul continues his new mission. eloquently defends and promotes the person of Jesus. He goes on and he actually proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. You'll see that in verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the hope of Israel. He's the hope of all nations. And he goes and he boldly proclaims he is divine and he is the promised Messiah, the one that we as Israel have longed for for so many years. And the people hear the argument and they're unable to defeat the arguments. They're unable to argue with him. He's confounded them. And so what happens? The message advances. Why? Because God calls, he commissions, and he equips his servants to accomplish the mission that he gives them. And as a result, you and I can submit to him and we can trust him to accomplish his purposes. And as he accomplishes those purposes, through our willing, humble submission to Him, we rejoice that He is continuing to work as He's promised He will. But God approaches us in our weaknesses and encourages and equips us each day as well. While our experiences, our joys, our trials, our plans, our uncertainties are unique to each one of us, God knows the unique circumstances of each of our lives and offers. Abundant, free, sufficient grace for every situation. That's who our God is. And He knows how to do that just the way that we need, so that we have what we need to continue on. His grace is sufficient each day for the trials that we face. Psalm 73, verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. my portion forever. And this is taken from a lament psalm and he's comparing himself to all the wicked people who are around him and he feels overwhelmed by their success. He sees the wicked and their prosperity and their success and he's perplexed. How is God good when the wicked prosper? What does God come to him and do for him? What does God come and remind him of? God comes and reminds him evil will face judgment. And that ultimately his no hope is not found in what happens in this life here on this earth. but Rather his hope is found in who God is. It's found in the eternal. Well that's not the only means by which God encourages us. It's an illustration of the means by which God can come alongside his Servants and he encourages them. Sometimes it's by reminding them of his grace. Sometimes it's by reminding them of the ultimate future hope. Sometimes it's by reminding them that God will judge and condemn evil people. Sometimes he uses other passages and other truths from his word reminders of his faithfulness and his care and his provision encourage us and equip us to go forth. But he comes to us in our weakness and encourages and equips us for each. day. Saul is abundantly successful in his new mission because he is called, commissioned, equipped, and enabled for his commission by the power of the risen Lord. And you see him go forth and he accomplishes his mission. Not only here, but he's going to go and accomplish this mission also in Jerusalem. Notice with me, He's done the mission in verse uh, 20, 21, or 20, sorry, verse 20, in Damascus. But then he goes to Jerusalem. And as he's in Jerusalem, what happens? He then there goes on and he proclaims there also the name of Christ. Look at verse 29. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the And it's implied what? They also are confounded. Why? because their response is the same response. Their response is not to double down on their arguments and to refine their arguments better. Their response is just like the Damascus crowd. If we can't beat you in intellectual argument, we'll kill you. That solves the problem, one way or the other. He's abundantly successful. Not only in the immediate context, but think about the lifetime context of Paul's ministry and the numerous churches that are planted in numerous different cities all around Asia by this man. Think of the rich work that we have in scripture that was produced by the Apostle Paul. He's abundantly successful, why? Because of who God is, not because of who Paul is, not because of who Saul was, not because Saul was such a great guy, because God is such a great God. God equips him. God enables him. God commissions him. And as he follows his great God, he is successful. And so, are you and I willing to submit ourselves to the gentle leading of Christ? Are you and I willing to say there are so many things pulling for us? Christ is better. Christ is more sure. Christ is the foundation upon which I cannot be moved from. And I will pursue after, I will follow after him, and I will obey him regardless of what may come. See, so when we have a proper understanding of who the God that we serve is, that his mission will advance, that his commission is sure, that our that our ambitions are not driven by who I am, but by God. That He is the one who has commissioned this mission. He is the one who will enable me and equip me for this ministry. We can go forward and we too can see God use us to accomplish great things in his name.
1: But notice with me, the
0: text concludes by telling us that God protects his mission. God protects Saul through threats on his life in Damascus. You back up with me into verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him through the wall in a large basket. God has a plan for this guy, right? He's told Ananias, this guy is hes my chosen instrument by which Gentiles, Israelites, and kings are going to hear about me. You think God's gonna let that just go to pieces because a couple people in Damascus want I'm dead? No. God protects his mission. God ensures that his mission is accomplished. The same thing happens in Jerusalem. He goes there. And what happens first is God protects Saul's mission from hesitant believers. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. He did not believe that he was a disciple. Barnabas took him and brought him into the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. See, unbelievers can't stop the work of God, but hesitant believers It goes on. God protects Saul's life from Hellenists who are enraged by his new commission. They attempt to kill him in verse 29, and what do the brethren do? When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. To protect his life, they send him on to Tarsus, where he is safe. See, God protects and provides his people with grace. miss something. I didn't highlight that. Do you guys have through obedience God multiplies his followers? Alright. Sorry. Let me see where I am. God protects and provides his people with grace. you have that too? No. Okay. Alright. So God protects and provides his people with, great, with peace. Sorry. So if you'll notice in verse uh, 31, so the text is kind of wrapping up, if you'll notice, the church's situation in verse 1 and 2 is not characterized very easily by peace. Verse one. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, of the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters from the synagogue of Damascus. Asked from him to, letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were on the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But what's the end result? God calls someone. God commissions somebody. God enables somebody. God equips somebody. God protects the mission. What's the end result? Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. See, God protects and He provides His people with peace. Why? It's not primarily because their circumstances. Because peace is possible even in the midst of circumstances that are very much like verses 1 and 2. Even if those circumstances are unchanged. Why do the people have peace? Because they know who God is. They know that they've been called by God. They have peace with God. And they know that God is leading and directing equipping and enabling them for His service. And their service will not be interrupted by human means until it is in God's plan and when you have such confidence in the character and plan of God even in turbulent circumstances even in trying circumstances you and I can have peace what else happens in the text in verse 31 they're walking in the fear of the Holy Spirit of the Lord and the multiply. Through obedience, God multiplies his followers. How are they doing this? I believe it's through the fact that they are strengthened. And as they are strengthened, they're pointed once again to the character of God. God is one who calls, he commissions, he equips his people. And this strengthens them. And it motivates them and encourages them then to walk in the fear of the Lord. These people have seen things about the character of God that are worthy of fear. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. What happens when somebody says that they're following God and doesn't actually follow God? God does not take that lightly. And all of a sudden they are once again reminded in a miraculous way that God his mission with the most unlikely people, Saul. Saul? I mean, like, the the believers have that response, like, Saul? But the unbelievers have that same response in verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not the man who destroyed the people of Jerusalem and has come here to do the same thing? But as they see that, they're reminded that God is truly powerful that they must submit themselves to him. They live in fear, but they also rejoice in the comfort that he provides. Because there's comfort in knowing that God has a plan and he's orchestrating his plan. I really liked one of the ways that one of the commentators described verse 31. He calls it a choral refrain, praising God for the advance of his mission. It's just an outburst of praise. like, God's doing it again. We've had a number of these before, right? Where you just have kind of a pause or the end of a story where it's like, here's a summary statement of the advance of God's mission in the world. And now God takes the most unlikely character so far in the book of Acts. And he takes his commission, he pulls his commission off him, and he gives him a new commission. He says, go and accomplish my mission. You're my servant. I've called you, and i be quick accomplish that. And as the church sees that, there's great comfort in knowing that God has a plan and his plan will be accomplished. And they rejoice in that. And as they do all this, the word of God advances and it multiplies. I think the text points us to the truth that God will preserve you so you can fulfill your commission. God will preserve you so you can fulfill. Your mission. I think of Paul's writing in Philippians. As he writes to them, he is rejoicing in the fact that they are partnered together for the gospel. And he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 and following, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, as they meditate upon the character of God and they see that God is one who calls people, who commissions them for service, who equips them and protects them as they accomplish their given mission, the church is reminded, we are reminded, that God will preserve us that the mission that God has given us will be accomplished. Not because we are so efficient, not because we are so great in our talents, but because his calling, his mission, and his enabling are so very sure. And there's great hope in that. And as others outside see that hope and that truth work out, it is something that is attractive. Because so much of life is so uncertain. That when you see somebody who can live in the uncertainty and the difficulty of this life with confidence and hope and comfort, it calls people to it and embraces people and welcomes people. So, as we think about application from the text, I think that you and I, if we are not believers, need to receive the Lord while we can be, He can be found. Saul is not a believer. He is not not somebody who has embraced the truth. He is not somebody that you or I, if we did not know the story and its outcome already, would ever expect to come to know Christ. And if you're still living, he's still available. He's still available to come to you, to offer you forgiveness, you are willing to humble yourself and repent and profess that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the one who's made full payment for your sin. He's the one who will give you his righteousness. And he's still available. He's available for somebody like Saul to come and receive the hope and the peace that's portrayed in this text. He's available to you. And the question is, will you or will you not submit yourself to his, his instruction? But then you and I need to also submit to the Lord's plan for our life. The text lays out and makes the argument that God's plan is sure that it will be accomplished. And yet so much of the time you and I are, are anxious about following the Lord, or apprehensive about it, Yet God's plan is sure, and, and so if you're struggling with, struggling with whether or not you're you're willing to follow the Lord in that next step of following Him as He's leading, and it could be that you know you're struggling with, should I go into ministry? Should I submit to my parents' authority in this area? Should I submit to my boss's authority in this area? Should I seek to develop a relationship with this neighbor so I can point them to Christ? Should I? Should I engage with that other person here at church who is going to consume a great deal of my time and I'm not sure it's worth the effort? Whatever area that God is leading you to, what the text is calling upon you and I to do is to see that God is going to commission you. It's not always going to be easy. Ananias does not have an easy job. And he lets God know that he doesn't have an easy job. What does God do? God comes alongside him and equips him and encourages him to accomplish it and then God's mission is to And so if you're struggling with that, ask the Lord to equip and enable you for service. Ask that he would not leave you without hope and without encouragement in this next step. Maybe talk to another believer and ask them to also go before the Lord and, and pray for you that God would give you the courage and the strength that you need to accomplish his mission. And then you and I need to trust the Lord's promise. God's mission will be fulfilled. And we can rejoice in the comfort of God's name. And as we reflect upon even the smaller demonstrations of God's character and promises being fulfilled throughout history, it should cause us to rejoice and cause us to trust Him more fully. Let's go to the Lord and order. Father, we do thank You for who You are. We thank You for the fact that you use people. You use flawed, failed people who are feeble, who struggle with sin just like we do. People whose backgrounds are questionable, to say the least. You use people like that to accomplish your mission. We pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, to be willing to submit to you, to trust in you, to call upon you for help when we need it, and as we see you continuing to work out your mission in this world, we would be quick to rejoice in the comfort that you give us through your word, through the demonstrations of your continued faithfulness and provision in our lives. In your name, we pray. Amen. from our song. Morning, arise, my soul.